Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to another edition of Spin the Rally Pod, and it's another special edition. Listen, we're really enjoying reliving the battle of the Japanese manufacturers through the 90s, really, in the WRC. And we've heard, haven't we, already from Derek Donsey about Safari Rally. We've heard from George Donaldson, our Spin the Rally Pod regular, about his time in Safari and in Kenya And if you talk about the 90s, the battle of the Japanese manufacturers, probably the standout year is 1998. The standout rally is Wales Rally GB. Now, as it was called at the time, the REC Rally, I'm going to confirm that in just a second or two. But we've already heard Derek Donnancy's take on that and Mitsubishi's take on it. So, well... It's back to George Donaldson, our Spin the Rally pod regular contributor. George, um, great to have you back again. I'm really enjoying going through the 80s. I enjoy going through the 80s, but I'm really enjoying, George, going through the 90s and hearing your recollections. It was an amazing time for rallying, wasn't it? It was, Colin. It was an absolutely amazing time. Um, uh, Not least of all, uh, 98, of course, which is the year we're really discussing here. Um, is was uh, Toyota's first uh, well proper full time return to the to the championship. We'd dabbled with the uh, the the Corolla. We'd started. We'd launched it in Finland in '97. Uh, came quite close to getting a great result there. Led for quite a while. Um, uh, believe it or not, we had a car run out of fuel. Uh, fuel fuel maladies. Um, uh, it was to do with consumption as opposed to the fill. I think. It was always up for debate a little bit. However, um, uh, that was 97. Moving into 98, that was Toyota back to full strength. So, you know, we, we had Carlos back in the team. We had Didier continuing on from his from the development year with the Corolla. And we uh, we went into that year. We also had uh, Freddie Loics dipping in and out in the team in, in 98. Um, uh, he was a Marlboro supported driver, but but he, he but I think we must have, he must have done uh, three or four, maybe five world championship events. Plus, we did the Belgian championship with him, which was great fun, nice little interlude. I did a number of those. Um, so yeah, it was a good it was a good year, an in, interesting year, and uh, and as you said, it, it culminated it culminated with that incredible finish, Carlos Sainz in sight of the flying finish uh, in Margam Park. With a blown engine. How did that happen? Well, oh. it's a long story, Colin. <laughs> well, 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 let's, let's, let's not go straight to the story, George. No, no I'm, indeed, I'm indeed. Already, We've got to go I'm right already... back to the beginning of the year, I think, really, haven't well, we? Absolutely. But let's talk about that because, you know, it was a very different approach that year from Toyota. You were coming back with a new car on the back 
of the troubles that you'd had where you were excluded from the championship. Was it a different Toyota team with a different approach, George? Was the mentality the same? Did you have to change perhaps the ethos, the way of working? Uh, I'm absolutely certain you were as driven as ever to, to particularly with Mitsubishi and Subaru doing so well at the time. I'm sure you were as, as driven as ever. But was there a fundamental change in the way that the team worked in 98? Um, uh, yes and no, Colin. Uh, the, the championship had changed, so, so we had changed. Um, I, 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 I was a relatively young uh, team manager at that time. I was only in my, my early 40s, really. Uh, well, when, when, I, when I got the job, at least. Um, so I, I was pretty go for it, and, uh, as a number of the team uh, were. But, but we still had the same boss, Uwe Anderson, who, who bemoaned a lot of the changes in the championship. He didn't like the fact that events were becoming centralised and not mobile. He felt that a great deal of the flavour of the event had been lost. The fact that rallies traditionally go out into the community and go around the country, lots of people can get to see it. That's why Rally GB, for instance, in, in, in UK, always got these mammoth uh, viewing figures. And uh, that was the amount of people that had actually seen part of the rally, albeit it might have just been a, a car servicing at the roadside or in their, in their farmyard or in their street in a housing scheme on the edge of a city on the Sunday stages. You know, the rally had a huge impact, so he hated that, and he didn't necessarily embrace those changes particularly well, but Uwe was incredibly com uh, competitive, and, and he was a winner. I'm not sure that everyone in our team was really that motivated to, to win, uh, as I was, but, but that's a story that we'll never repeat um, in, in many ways. Uh, I don't think we, okay, as a team, I don't think we did embrace the, the changes correctly because we didn't answer the, the call of the requirement of, of, the, of the time. We didn't win enough. Uh, we managed, in that two-year period of that car, we managed to win one championship. We nearly won a driver's championship. We nearly won two manufacturer's championships. We were on the cusp. Toyota was always, you know, we were always in the top three. Nearly every event, you would have a Toyota in the top three. And we were never generally speaking far away we still had very very good engines um the engine department in toyota has always been brilliant and the core engines you know that toyota allowed us to select the right engines and you know they would build and create the right engines so we had a great uh, a great start point george is it is it fair to say george listening to what you're saying and we've listened to the wonderful interviews that derek did with with david earlier on when mitsubishi came in they looked at really what you guys had done, particularly on the Safari Rally. But they also then looked at what you've talked about as well, the changing face of the WRC, the changing requirements mm. of the WRC. Is it fair to say that perhaps they adapted better than Toyota? Because Toyota dominated in the early 90s. Was it three manufacturers, championships in a row, George? You dominated, but then you struggled. Was it that inability perhaps to adapt as quickly as Mitsubishi and maybe Subaru as well, to the changing face of the WRC? Um, I don't think it's quite as simple or as clear-cut as that or as damning for Toyota because I think we were a pretty dynamic team filled with an awful lot of really incredible, dedicated people. Um, you, you know, everyone always says that Toyota had the biggest budgets and this and that and the next thing. I would say absolute nonsense to that. We were often the team that had no helicopter. We were often the team that that, that didn't have certain things that other teams had. We just focused it in a different way. 
Um, so I don't think we necessarily had a huge amount of more. I think we were financed differently. I think I think probably the biggest difference was Toyota was a non-profit factory team. All the other teams, including Mitsubishi, were based on commercial commercial standards. So it was in their interest to always say that Toyota had lots and lots of money. We never particularly counted it. I'm counting it now. And I was in two other teams um, uh, you know, later in my career. And I can tell you uh, that um, a lot of what is said about the budgets and, and the money availability was absolute nonsense. I had huge budget restrictions. I was always losing money to put into development in the end. I was actually, I got my the chief engineer very annoyed because he would ask for, for, for me to give up some more of my event budget so he could go testing. And in the end, I, I was basically saying, no, I'm not doing it because you're, you're testing someone that we know is already rubbish, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I got very unpopular very quickly at times. Yeah, yeah, George, you've never been yeah. one for holding back ever, No, no, you? I'm not really, no. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you you've kind of, I mean, I was team manager. I was there to actually say what needed to be uh-huh. said. I got unpopular with Uva on a regular basis for, for, you know, for doing what I knew that the team needed and, and I knew ultimately what he wanted. And he would, he would get annoyed with me. He would have not stand-up rows. He just wouldn't speak to me for a few days until I took him a nice espresso coffee from my nice machine in my office. <laughs> and, and, and we'd make up. <laughs> and uh, it was okay again. You know, but I mean, I never did anything except represent my team fiercely, properly, and within the team ethos and within the team guidelines. So, you know, I don't think Toyota had huge amount extra money than anyone else. It's just the money we had, you know, we could spend it on rallying. We didn't need to hold it back for, for, for commercial reasons, for profit, for, for dividends or anything like that. It was just we, 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 we went for it. But that said, I don't think we did. A br- we didn't do the best job we could have done in 98. I think we could have achieved more is the point is. I think we did a pretty good job. Look, we nearly won the championship in 98. We won it in 99. We won it by the skin of our teeth. But then when is a championship ever won worth winning? It's not won by the skin of your teeth. If you win it easily, then honestly, it's a little bit of a hollow victory. Um, so, you know, George, let, let's, let's just go back then. Let's mm. go back. Let's go back. We're talking about, you know, 98. We're talking about that incredible conclusion to the season within, well, metres of the final stop line, the championship was decided. Let's take it right back to the start of the year because, you know, the intensity in the battle between the Japanese manufacturers was real. You know, there is there was real intensity in terms of motorsport, in terms of showroom sales. Every aspect of it was real. So you had to prepare yourself as best you could for that season. Now, you went with a very different approach with your drivers. I'm sure you had a driver, a choice of drivers at the start of that year. Mitsubishi had Tommy Mackinnon, who was spectacular, but Mackinnon very much in the same mould as Colin McRae. And, and the season proved that to be the case. It was win it or bin it, you know, and, and a remarkable number of retirements for Mackinnon, but mm. then the most number of wins as well. Whereas your number one driver was the dependable, the reliable, the steady Carlos Sainz, who I think only had one retirement that year. Was there a choice of drivers that year? And did you make the right choice in Sainz as your number one driver? Look, uh, Carlos is always the right choice for a team. He always works really hard. He is always focused on one thing, victory. And whilst Carlos and I have had our disagreements over the years, um, 
he was he was i mean i've had quite a few hearts to hearts heart to hearts with him over that over that two year period when he was just as aghast as i was at some of the things that we were missing in within the team in terms of our um, our technical approach to to those events i think we could have done slightly better than we did i mean we continually and continually uh, tested shock absorbers and we continually came with exactly the same thing it seemed like in terms of the drivers we never quite gave them the car they wanted and i remember with uva uh, it was it was later in the in the period i think it would be in 99 going in in new zealand uh, we had a we, we had taken a weather helicopter now i mean again everyone says we had lots of money a helicopter in new zealand's cheap and a, a good weather call you, you know you can see the weather from the helicopter coming in you can judge whether it's going to hit a stage or not Together with the, the, the technical forecasts, you, you, you can get a great extra insight. So we did that. In the end, Uwe and I, we were doing very badly in 99. I know we've jumped forward, but just to give you an idea of where Carlos was, I took Uwe out onto the stage to let him see the difference between our car and everyone else's. And our car was like, honestly, it was like, it was like a, 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 a roller skate hard and bumpy and bouncy you would watch the Subaru come over over a jump over a railway bridge in one of the stages out to the north one of the dairy stages I think they were called um, I remember the Subaru coming across and it landed like a cat off a wall it was gorgeous the Mitsubishi was even softer and it bottomed out it was like it was like a cat that had quite got it wrong because <laughs> it, it bounced a little bit on its on its end stops. But the traction it had was amazing. And then our car came over. Honestly speaking, it bounced around all over the place. It never, you know, it never even got any any compression in the suspension at all. And uh, I remember, you know, at that point, Uber realizing, obviously quite late in the year at this point, that uh, that we got it uh, that we that we had it wrong. You know, our, our car was off the rails at that point but um but Uva, you know that's that's the way the car was developed and as a team manager you don't necessarily have that much input in a team you know engineering led i mean and our team was engineering led i was um i was a fairly small voice i was just in, in toyota you were just the team manager you know if you were if you were the engine engineer in Toyota, you were a more imp important person than I was, <laughs> even though I was team manager and I would face up to all sorts of hassles and trouble. Uh, I wasn't necessarily in the core of the decision making in, in anything like as much as you know listening to to uh, Derek's Derek's um, um, uh, podcasts. You know he he was he was the team coordinator, not the team manager, but he obviously had a, quite a firm hand on engineering. But at that time, you've also got to remember in Mitsubishi, their total number of engineers they employed was was it maybe three or four engineers actually proper engineers that they employed in Toyota. We had maybe thirty. Wow! You know, it was a huge difference. We developed a car. That, so you got to remember also the Mitsubishi was a car that was initially designed in Japan, and 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 the Mitsubishi team in in UK were given it and they developed it. You know, they developed they turned it from a a product into a, a winning car. They did all the, the the development, all the speed development, all the you know they would address all the breakages. But they didn't design the car out from scratch. They couldn't. They didn't have the mechanism for doing it. They were asked to do it in two thousand and one, and we got their well, honestly speaking, very abortive World Rally car, which you know nobody in Mitsubishi wants to remember, um, because they didn't have a big enough engineering team. So you know Derek. As a result, you had 
practical people like Derek, you know, my opposite number in many ways, he was getting that input into just fixing problems. You know, they recognised a problem with the suspension. They got it addressed. They got it fixed. It was a, it was a great team and it was an unbelievable team they had really because they had that ability to do that. They had a fantastic driver. They had a great development driver in Lassie Lampe. I know I didn't mention him on the, on the, in the 96 win, but he was a massive key element in that. Um, and they had Andrew, who who you know, who had faith in his team that would just move ahead with it, and they had a couple of couple of very good engineers as well. Naturally, well, what what I'm getting here, George, is you know we've got three teams, three teams within the championship that right now are battling head to head. Ninety eight. Yes. We've got yourself, we've got Mitsubishi, we've got Subaru, all from the same culture, all out of Japan, all yes. companies, all born from a very dynamic motoring industry. Uh, but from the same culture, but with very different ethoses, and I find this oh, interesting. Totally. Now you may totally. you may well have you may well have already answered this question when you talked about the fact that Toyota was essentially a factory team. The others were uh, what did you call them? How did you describe the, them? Commercial like, teams. Commercial, commercial teams. teams. Yeah. But but it's interesting because very very different approaches to really achieve the same aims. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, well, effectively, Toyota was run out of uh, by, by TMC, so the, the sorry TTE was 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 contracted by Toyota Motor Company, um, Andrew Cowan Motorsport, which was known as uh, uh, what was it uh, MM was it MRT or whatever it is um, the the Europe Mitsubishi team uh, was MRE. Um, Mitsubishi Rally Art Europe, that but that was Andrew Cowan Motorsport, and then of course you had um, you had the Subaru Rally team, which was uh, and sorry the, the Mitsubishi team that was yeah that was contracted by Rally Art, which is the motorsport division of uh, of Mitsubishi. You know it was it was a, 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 a you know a, 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 a sporting brand within the company, and Subaru was the same STI. Is you know Subaru Technica International. They were the the motorsport division of 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 uh, of Subaru of Fuji Heavy Industries. Mm-hmm. So um, huge differences in the in the the concepts, the the initial start points. So both both Mitsubishi and Subaru had their own motorsport departments and ran rally cars. Toyota never ran any rally cars. So with the input of Andrew Cowan at. Mitsubishi, the input clearly of David Richards at Subaru. Is it fair to say they were more adaptive, George, that you were perhaps working within more rigorous Japanese guidelines that perhaps as the championship had moved into its new phase, perhaps weren't quite adaptive enough? Maybe you were just a bit behind. I mean, first of all, I would absolutely applaud ProDrive and applaud uh, Andrew Cowan Motorsport or Mitsubishi Rally Art Europe for their dynamicism because they were dynamic and I and I was jealous of, of the, the way they were reacting and, and moving in, in one way. But it's my responsibility to 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 also be dynamic and, and we were in many ways. We you know we pulled plen- plenty of little flankers ourselves. Uh, but I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say that it was because we were run differently by the parent companies. Uh, but I might be slightly wrong because you know I know it been Fuji Heavy via STI were were very uh, kept very um, not close tabs that's the wrong word but but you know they were very involved with the the with ProDrive at the at the the bleeding edge of the sport 
and Mitsubishi uh, Rally Art Europe, you know, the, the chief engineer, Mr. Inagaki in, in Japan, he was the most fabulous guy. He was absolutely brilliant. And he, you know, the, the, the Group A, um, the, the Group A uh, Gallant, or uh, sorry, the Lancer was, was the, um, was the, was his car. It was his baby. It was his concept. It was his transmission. It, you know, it was, everything was 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 down to him initially. The, the the you know the core kinematics on the car would have been his. Uh, so yes, yeah, so so perhaps it is slightly different, Colin. I I wouldn't. Uh, I've, I've never thought about it directly in so many terms, but um, you'd have to say that um, it's it's a reasonable it's a reasonable analogy that that might have had something to do with it. But I think more I would look to our own failings rather than say. Right. It, was there any other reasons? I don't think we did quite a good enough job. Obviously, you know, we, we failed to get the Drivers' Championship for Carlos in 98. We failed to get the manufacturers in 98. You know, we we were in Australia. We went out to Australia with a chance for both. Yeah. And we lost it. I mean, I think, I mean, looking back on it now, in a very much a retrospective, and I'm not being wise after the event, uh, I know that we, we, you know, we lost it on the stop line of, um, of uh, GB, but I mean, you might say that we lost it in Australia, the event before, which was a an incredible series of stories from that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's yeah. let's just talk a little bit about that. We'll we'll try and come through the season, George, because you know nowadays when we look at the championship, when we look at the competition within the championship, uh, in terms of the manufacturers and in terms of the drivers, you know, it's all about consistency. It's all about reliability. If you give your driver a strong car and he doesn't make any mistakes, you're going to be there or thereabouts. And Sebastian Ogier has absolutely personified that over the past years. You know, Carlos Sainz's approach would stand him in good stead in the current World Rally Championship because he, he yeah, you're quite right, he, he was about winning and he was looking to win every rally, but he understood that you couldn't win every rally. And if you couldn't yes. win a rally, you had to score points. Now, when we yeah. look at the 98 season, you know, you're, there was Sainz, there was McRae, and there was Mackinnon. Sainz and McRae, uh, McRae, putting it off all over the place. You know, there, yeah. there are so many retirements. You know, McRae, basically, I, I think he won uh, three out of four rallies at one point, put himself right back in the championship, but then towards the, the end of the season imploded. Couldn't, couldn't finish a rally, couldn't pick up points. You know, the start of the season for Mackinnon was a disaster. Carlos kept plugging away, plugging away, plugging away. And oddly enough, considering that it was a car issue that cost him the championship, up until Rally GB, your car was reliable for him. You know, you, yeah. so you'd given him what he needed. You'd given him what he needed, and he was giving you what you expected of him. So it was, okay, let's talk about Australia, because Australia was quite contentious. But, you know, it was, it was going along on the face of it to plan. You were scoring points, you were scoring wins, you were there in Australia, the chance of winning the Manufacturers and the Drivers' Championship. But talk to us, George, about what happened in Australia, because it all got a little bit nasty, didn't it? Um, yeah, and no, I think I'm not quite prepared to talk about that, Colin, in, in its entirety. But but basically, there, there was... A, there was a, Tommy was awarded a jump start at the... Um, on the last stage on the Saturday night of the rally. Um, so he was penalised. I mean, I think it was a minute. Was it a minute or was it 10 seconds? I think it was a minute penalty for a jump start at that time. Can't quite remember. I got a feeling it was a minute. 10 seconds probably would have been enough. Um, can't quite remember what the deal there was. 
or was it to do the... No, he was just basically... I don't think he tried to get a jump start because they protested it. They protested it on the basis that the, the lighting system wasn't wasn't uh, pre-registered as uh, as the start device. It was the clock that, that was the, the correct system. And they protested it, that saying that, you know, that the light system wasn't the right way to start the rally. But the timing clock was there as well. So they had, it was like the lights were supplementary, but they'd been sort of sold as the as the, the, the major, sold in all the driver's briefings as the major starting device. Anyway, uh, Phil Short, bless his cotton socks, managed to protest, protest that the... Uh, they claimed that the that uh, Tommy had gone on the lights and not the clock, uh, and there was a difference between the two, and that was that. So this protest had gone in in the middle of the night. Um, my team coordinator at the time was there at the uh, down at the the steward's room, and it was finally decided about one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. I got a phone call saying what happened. Uh, do we want to appeal it? And I said, well, um, I know I knew for very well, uh, obviously at that stage, I'd known him for, for uh, a good number of years, uh, probably about 15 years at that point, I'd been working for him. And uh, I knew that he wouldn't want to counter it at that point. And I said, well, there's always something we can do later. You, you, you can only appeal within 30 minutes. And if you don't, you've lost the chance, but there are other mechanisms. Um, so anyway, Got up the next morning. I explained what had happened to Uva. He said, "No, no, George, you made the right decision, a hundred percent." Anyway, Carlos didn't think I'd made the right decision because um, uh, uh, it affected him and his championship points. Uh, and and I basically had said, "Look, guys, just play the long game. Let this play out today, and I've got some things in hand. Stand by." Anyway, what I had in standby was I'd got a hold of the footage from Tommy's car. I'd requested the footage from Tommy's car, which I got the in-car cameras. BBC ran them. I got a copy of the video. <laughs> so I didn't get it until much later in the day. We looked at the footage and you could see that the clock and the, the lights were perfectly synchronised and that Tommy jump-started very nearly two seconds ahead of the, ahead of the curve. Wow. So... Basically, I prepared a protest under uh, Article 179B in the Sporting Code. Article 179B allows you to bring new evidence into into the, the framework of, of a protest, even on one that's already been decided. And you can do that up until the 30th of uh, November every year, I think it is. The date can change. Anyhow, um, uh, so I, I went in with that. So after after being ostracised all day and having probably one of the worst days of my life that, that Sunday, um, apparently apparently I'd, I, my face was plastered all over the main news in in a, in, uh, in Spain saying that I'd cost <laughs> Carlos his championship. And I was actually on the national news, my face, as being wow. this terrible person. And I, 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 I think... Uh, Carlos, bless his, bless his cotton socks, had um, had uh, even managed to do some news interviews saying that this was a travesty and that I was an idiot. Anyway, you know, <laughs> I kept my powder dry maybe a little bit too long for his liking. But anyway, I put the protest in, explained to Carlos what was being done. Uva was very happy at this stage. He'd changed his mind up again. First of all, he'd agreed with me. Then he disagreed with me. He broke faith with me, which was very naughty of him. And then, of course, 
he was back on my side. So anyway, we put our protest in, uh, counter protest in, and I gave it to the stewards and I talked them through the whole process. They got a technical expert in, in my presence, to agree that the footage was unequivocal and there should be a retrospective reinstatement of the uh, of the penalty. Uh, anyway, it, it, there's a whole load of things, other things, little things happened there, which I will not discuss right now. And in the end, uh, after some discussion between the clerk of the course, Uwe Anderson, um, and Carlos Sainz and myself, I marched back into the stewards' room uh, before they made their decision, and I asked them to with I asked to withdraw my protest. Um, so I withdrew my protest, and I can still I still remember the chairman of the stewards' face saying, "Why have you done this?" And I, I said, "I said, I said, we are doing it to save the reputation of our sport and our team, uh, because wow. we don't want to be we don't want to be involved in this business." Quite clearly, the pro- the first protest was false grounds, but we've all been we've all been told falsehoods by drivers, so I'm not holding any aspersions against Andrew or or uh, or or Phil Short far from it because you know they're, they're in, in the sporting context drivers are emotional they don't always necessarily report what someone else will see they report it from their point of view absolutely fair and I wouldn't expect any less from my drivers so no aspersions being cast in anything if we'd left that protest in I can tell you there would have been an awful mess going on uh, and it would have been it would have been, I think, very bad for Toyota to have seen to have been part of that mess. So Toyota decided not to proceed. Personally speaking, I was absolutely furious because I knew that I knew that if we'd if we'd well, I, I mean, I know this. I know the chairman of the stewards very very well. He's he's someone I've, I've dealt with for the entire time I was a team manager, and subsequently I've, I knew I knew. Uh, that, that particular gentleman, I've known him for 40-odd years. Um, uh, well, since 1983. There you are. I've known him since 1983 now. So, um, and I know damn well, I know absolutely that the decision was coming down in our favour. The protest, our protest was going to be upheld. There was, there was, there was nothing else to happen. So Tommy would have been applied uh, a penalty. Uh, but something else would have happened that wouldn't, might have knocked Carlos down the numbers a little bit as well. So there was there was other other associated things going on. Me going in there, pulling that protest, cost us our championship because the one thing that would have wow. happened at that point, we would have won our championship, and we would have won our championship on the basis of a protest. Right. Although it was a counter protest, it wasn't our protest. So anyway, Uva decided, and I think looking back in it, you know, now I I think it was probably the right thing to do. I wasn't happy about it at the time, but as always in my job. I I went in and I represented the team wholly and squarely on the team's basis, not, nothing to do with what I wanted. Uh, I, I've done some horrible things and I've done some tough things and I've, I've, I've done some fair things. And I guess in many ways that was an absolutely fair thing and we withdrew our protest. And that kept, uh, that kept um, well, ultimately kept uh, Carlos's hopes alive going into GB. Oh, Georgie, boy, dearie yeah, me. But there was, wow, that, that had me spellbound. They had a couple That's... of other things that did happen in there that I'm just not quite prepared to say. So Fair enough. I think you said... Enough, enough going on. It was a tough time, you know. Well, it sounds and, like uh, it. My goodness yeah, me. I mean, that... It was hard. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we're talking about huge investments. We're talking about huge reputations. We're talking about 
massive oh, yeah. rivalries between the huge, biggest car huge manufacturers it was, it was, in the world. It was great fun. It was great fun. And we look back on it now, I suppose it was great fun. I, <laughs> I, I can still feel a chill going through yeah. me because I, I can still feel a sort of sickness in the pit of my stomach almost. <laughs> I mean, I wanted I wanted to win the manufacturers, honestly speaking. I didn't care so much about the drivers' championship. I, want, I mean, I, I worked for a factory team. I wanted a manufacturers win. Yeah. That's what I yeah. really wanted. Um, and and uh, but of course the drivers championship wins you a huge amount of kudos and from the from the manufacturer's point of view it's also very important. Uh, but for Carlos, of course, it was everything, you know. And, and so then we go to GB. Yeah, with, with still the chance of winning the drivers yeah. and the manufacturers championship, and one day into Rally GB, and my goodness me, it's looking as if all of that uh -huh. tension, all of that drama, uh, all of that anxiety from Australia perhaps was worth it when Tommy had his issues on that. Was it on a road well, section? Well, we couldn't believe it. We, we, I think we saw it live. I think we were, because it was it was live out on TV. And I've got a feeling, that, I've got a feeling that uh, Uwe and I were sitting in the Castro motorhome. So it, we, we were still driving around the country a little bit. We must have been, it wasn't just service parks. We must have been, it must have been service zones that we were still doing in 98 because I'm, I'm sure we were sitting in the Castro motorhome when we saw Tommy knock a wheel off his car, and I knew very well it was it was in um, where was it? it was in Myra the 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 road the road uh, uh, the, the the road the testing test centre yeah uh, the yeah. testing centre, and of course a Hillman imp had ironically um, <laughs> spilled oil all over the road, and Tommy was the unfortunate one that found it catastrophically. Um, and that was, I mean, that was horrible. I remember looking at thinking, oh, no, but, oh, what does it mean for us? And, and knowing it was, it, was a, it was a 50 mile drive to where you were going to get help and he had no wheel on his car, you know? So, um, uh, unless he illegal serviced, but everyone had seen it. It was on TV. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy one to hide. And, and, you know, Mitsubishi weren't into that sort of thing anyway, although happenstance can always occur. Um, uh, but anyway, um, Tommy was out of the rally. All all Carlos had to do was finish. So the the strat Carlos's strategy changed entirely just to get himself into the top. I think all he had to be was in the top six. Um, so some something like that, maybe the top five. Um, all he had to do was finish. So he drove accordingly, and he started driving the car slower and slower and slower and slower. Just did only what he needed to do to survive. So the engine RPM, he was using lower and lower RPMs. And for some reason, and now I was told this by one of our um, foreman mechanics, the fabulous uh, chap, um, who I'll just, well, Leonard, Leonard is his name, it's a Swedish chap. He's, sadly, he, he died just in the, in the, the recent past. Uh, but he was a fabulous, fabulous guy, unbelievably competitive, wanted to change. And he told me the after the event, he said that they, they kept making the boost on Carlos's car higher and higher. It ended up on some incredible boost level because the engine wasn't being revved and, and because it was slippery. They were, I don't know, I, I've no idea what the reason for it was, but I remember saying to Leonard, but Leonard, the way the, the car was being driven, that was going to, it was always going to blow the engine up. He said, yeah. He said, I've no idea why. Wow. So <laughs> there's a bit of insight I've never shared with anyone. <laughs> um, so I've, I've no idea quite what the story there was. Um, 
uh, Leonard Leonard's uh, point of view was maybe always a little bit um, a little bit uh, uh, different from in, in everyone else's. But that's what he told me. You know, I mean, I, I, when I was sitting in the motorhome, I was sitting in Super One. He was there in charge of one of the cars. Prob- well, he would have been in charge of all the mechanics. Leonard would have been the probably the 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 chief the chief mechanic effectively on the whole event. And he was in a state of some distress about it. But I mean, I mean, I guess basically the bottom line is, we as a team made a mistake, and we as a team paid the penalty, as did Carlos. Everyone saw it. That engine being driven really, really slowly, really, really carefully, just let itself go. And it was on, apparently, as I said, it was on incredibly high boost levels. So what, that's why just, it let just, go. You know, he did everything you thought he should be doing through the rally, George. And obviously oh, that concern look, may have been there with one or two of the engineers, but it, obviously not senior enough to make their their views yeah. telling. So you get to that final stage, you've got the championship, you've got both championships in the bag. You've come down out of the forest, they're into Margam Park, uh, the spectators are there, they're proclaiming Yoel Matador as the world champion again, and then a puff of smoke. The, the, the ultimate counting your chickens before the hatch. Let me say this very, very clearly. Uwe Anderson would never be buying an ice cream before the car was over the finish line, down at the last con- control. Right. Never, ever took, and, and, and he drummed it into everyone that that was the process. So you would not find anybody in the Toyota team anything except a bundle of nerves filled with respectful um, uh, um, attention to the event right until the very, very last. We were never ones to be running around crowing. None of that would have been going on at all. Nothing but respect for the competition, nothing but respect for the event, nothing but respect for rally, because we know it can bite. So we were in Margam Park, we'd be as nervous as everyone else, be as nervous as Carlos in the car. And then I got the call through on the radio. And as I recall, it was Carlos, uh, Carlos calling me on the radio and he said, George, he said, the engine has blown. I said, Carlos, can you not can you not keep it moving? Can you get it over the finish line? What's the story? He said, George, the engine has completely exploded. Oof. At which point I remember saying to Carlos, Carlos, I, I have no words to say what I think you need to hear. I'm unbelievably broken and as upset as you are. And uh, there was very little words exchanged in the Toyota team. And I just uh, I just said to him, I said, uh, I think I'll walk across and uh, and do the usual courtesies with our opposing team. And one thing that that we always did at Toyota, and and, and Uva always told me, um, as team manager, I was expected to go and congratulate the winning team, shake their hands, which we always did, and we did it horribly frequently because we didn't win that much ourselves. We won three rallies that year. Um, I'm happy to revisit those ones. I walked across to the Mitsubishi service point and of course people were this was within four or five minutes of the news coming across I walked across and uh, went into the service area and uh, I, f- I knew a few of the Mitsubishi mechanics and they're looking at is it true and I said yeah yeah I said guys Tommy's world champion congratulations and shook their hand went in and found uh, Andrew Cowan and Phil Short I remember Andrew saying George he said it he said I can't believe this has happened and I said Andrew I said I can't believe it either, but I'm here to say congratulations. Brilliant fight. Incredible year. Thank you very much. 
and I remember not getting very much out of them. Dumbfounded, Phil, Phil, as always, was his usual courteous self. He would understand where I was coming from. But everyone else was kind of dumbfounded that I'd come across that quickly and, and said congratulations. And, you know, it was a, it was a hard-fought year and, and Tommy was a yeah. very worthy winner. But just as Carlos would have been a worthy winner, I would have rather my driver won than Tommy at that time. I didn't know Tommy well at that time. I mean, we, we knew each other in the same way that... <laughs> Everyone knew Tommy, which was this um, this uh, rather quiet, uh, almost um, sullen, serious character. And it wasn't until I worked with Tommy uh, two years later that I mean, we, we instantly became phenomenally good friends. Probably, I mean, every bit, uh, every bit as friendly and boisterous a, a character as as the public face of Marcus Gronholm. That is the Tommy that you get when you know him. And, uh, but as a team, you know, it, it's, it's competition. It's, it's, um, it's combat. You know, it's, it's you know, single-armed combat, if you like. These guys are focused, and that was the Tommy that I knew at that time. Of course, we yeah. didn't see Tommy after that event because he was, uh, he was away. And, uh, you know, he did, well, he, I think he was at the hotel just waiting, <laughs> very reluctantly. He'd been desperate to go home for three days. I bet he was very glad he didn't. I bet he um, was, George. At the, at the end. Yeah, well, um, you know, I mean, just, just again, George, just um, we can tell the emotions of the whole thing. It, it's a tremendous oh. story that you tell. And, you know, an amazing thing to have lived through and obviously not the outcome at all that you were looking for. But, you know, as a team, how long did it take you to get over that and to refocus for the following year? Was Was there an awful lot of fallout? Was there a lot of retrospective thinking? What could have been? What should have been? Maybe we should have done this. Uh, or, or did you literally, on the following morning, just think, OK, all efforts on next year now? Uh, it would have been all efforts on next year, Colin. Um, we'd have been sending teams off to Africa still at that point to hopefully do a better job in 99 than we'd managed in 98. It wasn't. It was a repeat, sadly. And I'm sure that the, if, if, uh, if, if, if there's a particular engineer gets to hear this, he'll, he'll be casting daggers at me. We fell out over it big time. Um, the, um, uh, the, you know, the, I mean, I think from, from a general point of view, yeah, w w it, it was tough. I mean, we started off Monte Carlo the next year. Both cars crashed on the first stage. Carlos stopped altogether. Did he manage to keep going? I think he got back to, he got back to a points position, I think. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, the gravel crews, you know, went completely against the briefings, completely against the briefings and did what they wanted. And I know who they were led by as well. You know, there's two gravel crews and I know which one had decided that they wanted to have a, they wanted to have an earlier breakfast than I wanted them to have. George. <laughs> so that, that cost us a Monte Carlo victory. We'd won it the, Carlos had won it the year before. Oh dear, you know, George. The gravel crew went over 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 a stage way too early before it was iced up. You know, it's just it's unbelievable. I remember yeah. Uva 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 invited everybody to come into into um, into Cologne. So we had the gravel crews, we had the drivers. I remember Carlos wasn't happy about coming, and that was the best briefing I ever saw Uva give on, on any year. That was the briefing. That was a that was a great briefing. He actually read the riot act at that point. Which was directed at everyone, myself included, except that he knew he knew damned well that, that I mean, well, most of the people in the room knew that the briefing was mine. 
I wrote the briefing for Uva to read. But Uva was George. very eloquent. He could write a beautiful letter and he was he was so succinct and to the point. It was good what? stuff. Yeah, so yeah, tough year. It was very disappointing for us. I can't even remember what I did after the event. The last thing I can remember now from that event is going across, shaking Andrew and Phil's hands. And I think they were in a big hangar at this airfield somewhere between... Uh, Swansea and Cardiff, there was a big airfield service, an old disused airfield. That was the last service, as I recall, and they're going across. And I shook, probably shook half a dozen of the guys in the Mitsubishi team's hands, you know, to say, well done, guys. And that was the, that was the point at which they realised that we were stopped. You know, I can't even remember how I felt at that point, except for disappointment. Can't remember anything else about it. Can't can't imagine there was much said in uh, Super One with myself and Uva, and we probably would have had um, uh, Mr. Fukui in the back of the car with us. That was our vice president, Japanese vice president, was would be with us. Uh, wasn't wasn't a great uh, a great moment? Not at all, I'm sure, George. Uh, no, absolutely fascinating stuff, and a, and a wonderful listen. I've enjoyed every single second of listening to your story there. Uh, what a year! What a year! '98 was. I think maybe. The next podcast we've got to talk about the last couple of years then, but for '98 that that was it was an emotional roller coaster, George Donaldson, and we very much enjoyed your as always your honesty, your insights, and your absolute passion for the sport, and perhaps more than the sport for Mr. Anderson and for the Toyota team at the time. George, an absolute joy, an absolute joy talking to Colin, you. Colin, thank you very much, and, and enough to say. The last word is, of course, we went out in '99 and we did win the world championship. In 98, we won three rallies. We won Monte Carlo, we won in New Zealand, and we won in Catalunya. Catalunya's a funny story as well. We could go back into that for 98 as well. In 99, in 99, we only won one rally, China, but we won the championship. There you go. There you go, George. Well, we will do that. We will talk 99 and Toyota at some point in the future. Uh, but, George so Donaldson, we will be talking a lot more on Spin the Rally Pod Uh in the coming weeks, that's for sure. But taking you back to your days as team manager of Toyota for the, the 90s, the glorious 90s, the inglorious 90s at times, has been a joy, George. Thank you very much, as always, for your time. Colin, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>